Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Coming back to us here on Spin the Rally Pod, I'm rally fan Lisa O'Sullivan with a minor role in today's episode. We're bringing you another retrospective, a look back to the golden age of rallying. And we are living it through the eyes of our contributor to Spin the Rally Pod, George Donaldson, with his historic team knowledge, a former team boss, of course, but a man who has worked on the Safari Rally more times than I have fingers on my hand. Now, as we come into this podcast, preparations are continuing for a possible return to Africa for WRC Cruise. It's scheduled to take place at the beginning or the middle of July, July the 16th to the 19th. And the supplementary regulations should be out by the end of this week. That is the 16th of May. So, We'll keep you up to date here on Dirtfish.com on the latest developments and whether that WRC round will survive the coronavirus outbreak. But for now, we're going to go back in the past. And it is Colin Clark, the voice of Rally himself, who's taken George to one side to sit back and relive those rally years. George, an awful lot of people will remember you from your days with the Subaru World Rally team in the early noughties. But my goodness me, you cut your teeth on the Safari Rally. And that's what we're talking about today is the Safari Rally. It still looks as if we're going to the Safari this year, which would be fantastic. The first time in nearly 18 years. But tell us about your first time on the Safari, George. Where did your relationship and how did your relationship with the Safari Rally start? Well, it was my second African WRC rally. I had the privilege of going to the Ivory Coast in 1985. And 1986 was my first safari rally. So the only safari rally I got to do with the Group B Celica. I got got two um, Ivory Coasts, one uh, safari with that Group B Celica and numerous uh, other uh, rallies that we did uh, with the team in that uh, sort of a 12-month period I had with them with the Group B. So Safari Rally, when, when you get there, um, is, you know, such an iconic event for anybody that's, I mean, like myself, I'd been a, a, an absolute rally devotee for 10, 11, 11 years of my life to, to be arriving in Kenya. Uh, and it was direct from Sweden. I'd done the Swedish rally myself as a driver um, in 1980, in 1980. Six. Did we finish? I think we finished. Yes, we did. We finished. Um, and then uh, straight, literally off the finish ramp, <laughs> my service crew took me to uh, to the airport in Stockholm, Orlando, wow. where I got where I met two Swedish uh, mechanics, and uh, we got on a flight. 
and headed off to Kenya. Swissair flight from there to Zurich. The flight was cancelled or delayed, technical delays. We got put in a hotel in, in uh, Zurich overnight and then flown down to Kenya a day late. And I can, I can well, remember we arrived very early in the morning. How did that come about? Well, um, when, I'd, when I'd taken myself out to do WRC rallies and driving very small cars, um, being a forward sort of person, uh, you know, you, en you end up chatting to lots of people and you're out there on these events. There's a whole load of professional people. Now, this was at a time before Schengen Zone and it was difficult to get around in Europe with a rally car and parts and spares. Anyway, myself and my very small team of, of uh, total four people, um, we got ourselves to Sweden uh, repeatedly. And you, you, you get talking to professionals. And they meet you and what are you doing here? You hear spectating, no, we're driving, what are you driving? Oh, you're that you're in that mini or fiesta at the back of the field. How do you manage to get here? Well, we just figured out how to organise it and we, we just got on with it. We chased down a whole load of deals. And they start to realise that what you're doing is a miniature of what they're doing. Actually, you're a pretty handy guy because you've done it all yourself. You're exactly the sort of person that's needed in a world rally team. And so you, you you meet people, you keep in touch with them. You know, if you get a phone number or an address, you send them letters, you phone them up every now and again. This at a time when a, a phone call to a foreign country would have been costing you, you know, literally a pound a minute. And a pound a minute back in the the early 80s, uh, the early to mid 80s was um, more like a fiver a minute now, you know, in terms of uh, the, the value to you. So yes, yeah, so it was. It was uh, you just you just gathered uh, the connections. I was very lucky. Fred Gallagher, one of the WRC top WRC co-drivers of the time of the whole era. In fact, uh, he he just moved to Scotland and in Edinburgh. I lived in Edinburgh. How handy was that? Well, I, I was always nervous to make a nuisance of myself, but I just kept myself around. And Fred phoned me up one day saying that we're off to do a, an REC test for uh, for this. Because that was in that was in 1985, so it was an early test. It was an autumn test for REC, and they were doing it in, uh, I think it was at Kershop Stage down uh, down just uh, near near Moffat, um, uh, just uh, just just east of Moffat. Um, they were doing a, a rally test there for a few days. Did I want to come down for the day's testing? Well, I just took a day off work and um, and off uh, down I went with Fred. Met the team manager, Henry Lydon, met Bjorn Waldegar, wow. met various wow. mechanics and got chatting to them. Didn't make a nuisance of myself. In fact, it wasn't Bjorn, it was Juha that was testing. So this was 1985 REC Rally Test. And uh, Henry Lydon got uh, chatting to me about this and that. And the next thing, asked me what I'd done, asked me what I did, etc, etc. And but basically, it was anything to have money to have a rally car at that time. And um, about... Um, a month or so later, he called me up and said, can you go to the Ivory Coast for three weeks uh, to do to be a mud car and a mechanic for us? So a mud car mechanic, basically. And you can help me because I because I was the car club uh, magazine editor at the time. Um, he said, you can type up all the service plan for me. I've, I'll have been around the route and you can help me type it up and form it up and everything. Uh, yeah, incredible opportunity. This was a phone call one morning, just leaving the house. It was about eight eight fifteen in the morning, and I was a, a bit a little bit late leaving for work. And I, and I, but I answered the phone, and it was the happiest phone phone I ever answered. And uh, Henry said, uh, "I need to know if 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 you can go. I'm going to buy the tickets now. If you say yes." And this was in uh, it was in about uh, four weeks' time. 
It was literally four weeks before the Ivory Coast. Three, maybe three weeks before the Ivory Coast. I just had time to get my inoculations. And um, he said, uh, he said, uh, would you, would you, could you do it? And uh, I just, I just uh, didn't even think about it. I said, yes, absolutely. He said, well, what about your work? And I said, well, um, I, I, um, I can get the time off work, no problem. It's not, work's not an issue. Um, I've got three or four jobs. I'll get the time off. He said, look, I'm going to buy the ticket. Don't let me down. No, I won't let you down. And uh, went into work and just handed my notice in. <laughs> there was no other thing to do. <laughs> as you would. As you would. So it's another story, isn't it? Uh, anyway, so uh, anyway, I ended up in Ivory Coast and, and I was useful. I, I did lots of things. I ended up in a spotter plane on the first leg, which was an almost impossible task. That is another story. Definitely. Um, using a spotter plane over tropical jungles. You are on a hiding to nothing. Very, very difficult job with a pilot that speaks no English, uh, a, a co-pilot that spoke no English and a, a co-driver, a French co-driver who spoke a tiny amount of English to match my tiny amount of French. But we all spoke rally, so it was fine. And and we did a, a reasonable job, uh, but not without its um, its little hiccups on the way as well. So... It wasn't. It wasn't the best. I got very dehydrated and was sick all the next Ooh. night. Anyway, an incredible, an incredible experience. And I ended up out in Africa. Now, Ivory Coast was one thing. It was amazing to be there, but all you ever see is trees. You know, you're never more than twenty meters from a jungle tree, so you see no views. All of a sudden, you arrive in Kenya, and it is the most amazing country. It is utterly magical. It is the pearl of Africa. It is gorgeous mm. and, and it's filled with Josh, lovely, lovely people. I think it's it's fair to say, I mean, we can tell from that description there that you very much have an affinity with, with Kenya. Uh, you, know, you became known as, as the Safari Man, didn't you? you? You were the man that spent a lot of your year out there preparing for that one event. These, these were different days in rallying. There were different budgets, different commitments, different, yeah. I suppose, objects from the manufacturers. But... Uh, you know, you've told me before, you would spend, what, up to six months in Kenya? In, l- latterly, latterly, in, in, the, in the heyday of the event, up until 1995, it was still a massive event. It was still a, you know, two to 3,000 competitive miles. From 96 onwards, it became a sort of special stage event more. Uh, so that the mileage dropped to just, uh, well, under, I think it was just on 1,000 kilometres in 96. The event changed massively at that point. Uh, and I, I mean, I guess it had to to survive to bring the whole WRC teams to it and to maybe get into line with with cost savings. It changed radically at that point. Um, yeah, so when I first went out there, that was the third year of the success of the Group B for the Celica. So the team was very, very well prepared, very well balanced. We we went out for uh, I think about eight weeks. Uh, so I was I was part of the early group that went out. Um, so it was straight after Sweden rally. It was a late safari that year. Um, um, Easter was late, so I went out straight after Sweden, and we started immediately doing doing the recce. So it was Bjorn Waldegard, Lars Erik Torp, and um, who else was there? Um, German driver Erwin Weber. Um, he was the kind of also ran, I guess, in a way, and without being cruel to him, but he, he wasn't in the same ballpark as the as the other two drivers. Uh, far from it. Um, the uh, and we we just we just wrecked the hell out of the place. But the wrecky went incredibly well. It was a dry year, very very dry year, and we were doing uh, on one particular day. Bjorn made 
a thousand, it was eleven hundred kilometers of stages he drove. I remember Fred saying, "We have broken eleven hundred kilometers today." It was a section out of Nairobi, and we went, we went, we went up over the Mau Escarpment. It went right out towards Kisumu, well through Kericho. We we even stopped. We stopped for, uh, we stopped for 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 uh, a coffee. Uh, a breakfast, actually, at the Kericho Tea Hotel. I mean, it, honestly, it's as good as it sounds. The Kericho Tea Hotel, it's gorgeous. And you go in there, you sit out in the veranda overlooking a valley filled with tea trees, which is so green it almost hurts the eyes. And someone brings you a lovely cup of tea and, and some toast, and, you know, bacon sandwiches, whatever you want. It's great. And then you're on your way again. Kasumi, we went away north up Kakamega. Um, uh, I-10, was it I-10? I can't remember. We buy, we buy Bungoma. Uh, then I went away up past Katali, uh, up to the north and back to Elder. That was the 1100 kilometre day. And that particular day, <laughs> the, my, my co-service crew, so I was the young uh, snotty Scot um, who didn't know it all, I have to say. I never ever pretended I knew it all, but I just kind of got on with it. Um, I was in a, the van with petrol and tyres. So I was driving this high ace van <laughs> with, uh, I would have had six drums, six hundred, six two hundred litre drums of fuel in the back. A sort of big fast fill fuel device that sat on a plywood plank with a pipe that you threw into a fuel drum and the other pipe you threw into the back of the rally car, all open stuff. And I, and I would have had probably um, uh, four or maybe five complete sets of tyres, roof rack and on top of all the on top of all the, uh, the the fuel vans. Basically, what it was, was a crude napalm device. <laughs> <laughs> and you were driving around in Kenya Jeez. like hell. To, well, not really like hell. You, you you pushed as hard as you had to, but, you know, you weren't you weren't going slowly anywhere or anything. You were just driving, banging around the place. I didn't drive anything like a 1,000 kilometres that day. Obviously, I wasn't doing the sections. I, w- I would have maybe done five or 600 kilometres. Anyway, my co-service crew managed to sleep in uh, and uh, they were they were a little bit uh, arrogant at the time, and uh, uh, um, told I'd said, look, uh, well I'll give you a call when I, when my alarm goes off, and you give me a call in the morning. No, 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 we don't need your help. Blah blah blah. Okay, fine. Anyway, I just I just got out in the morning, uh, ordered my breakfast to take with me, ordered their breakfast to go with me as well, and uh, off I went. I got to the first uh, the first refuel point. Where's the other guys? They're not pitched. Did you give them a call? They absolutely told me not to. They told me to f- actually. <laughs> oh, sorry. <laughs> one, one, one for the one one for the beep there. Sorry. And um, <laughs> it, it, we continued. Uh, Bjorn was on a roll. Things were going well. The car was fine. It didn't need any parts. So I mean, it basically did. Uh, I think about eleven hundred kilometers that day. Competitive. And and uh, and Fred wrote notes for the entire route. They decided they would just write notes for the entire route. And that was the first year that Bjorn was doing Safari Rally with Fred because he'd just switched from uh, Hans Torselius to Fred Gallagher. So they were rewriting all the notes in English. So Fred wrote 1,100, well, probably more than that. Or maybe, maybe that was the total distance we'd done, actually. Maybe it was 1,100 kilometres was the total distance we'd done. But he wrote notes for the whole thing, yes. I'm just sitting enjoying these wonderful stories. But just remind us what year that is, George. This is 1986. So the last year of Group B. The last year of Group B. Yeah, and Gallagher, the previous year, 
in 85 had won with Kankinen in a That's Toyota. Correct. So yes, he, was, yes, he was an experienced yes. co-driver. He, 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 you know, he knew what was needed to win. Oh, absolutely. So clearly, absolutely. Clearly, it was a very, very professional oh, approach from Fred but, and from but, Bjorn. Bjorn had won it a couple of times himself previously, hadn't oh, he? Bjorn, had, Bjorn won it in 1984. Uh, Fred, Fred and Juha won it in 85. Um, uh, and Bjorn, has, uh, Bjorn had won it previously, of course. I'm sure. I'm sure he had. Bjorn was an absolute, really, really an absolute gentleman and a, such a sportsman. So determined. He was the, the epiphany of professionalism in the same way that, you know, Carlos Sainz has become the epiphany of professionalism. Sebastian Loeb, Sebastian Ogier, the epiphany of a professional, you know, um, how would you call it, um, approach filled with humility. You know, not, nothing boastful about any of those names I just mentioned. They just get on with it and do a proper good job. And that was Bjorn. And, uh, and he was George, lovely to be with. And he George, looked after George. you and, and he made sure everyone was okay. And he worked and worked and worked. But do you know what? I've listened to the Derek Donsey podcast about the Mitsubishi team and their approach to the Safari Rally. And he, he was equally complimentary about his drivers at the time. And what he said was, he said the difference really from, obviously Derek's not involved in the World Rally Championship full-time anymore. He does occasionally turn up with Ken Block. Uh, but he's seen and he knows a lot of these top drivers nowadays. And he knew and he worked with a lot of top drivers back in the 80s, 90s and early noughties. And he said that the big difference is that in those days, the drivers were very much team players. They very much did what they had to do because they wanted to succeed, not necessarily for themselves, but for the teams. And that sounds as if, you know, maybe drivers nowadays a little bit uh, self-centered, you might say. You know, they do it for themselves. They do it for whatever they can get out of it rather than the team necessarily. But back in the day, the driver was very much there for the team. Colin, no short answer to this one. Apologies to the listeners for that. But but here we go. So, um there are there are good and bad people drivers whatever everywhere and i and i think that's that sounds a little bit unfair to the modern driver saying that they're you know they're not, they've not got the interests of the team at heart i'm sure that's not the case i'm absolutely sure that's not the case you know we know everyone knows it's public knowledge that uh, that Ott Tanak and Tommy Mackinnon didn't get on but Ott worked very, very hard for the benefit of the team. And he very often you heard him making public comments about, you know, wanting to look after the team and making sure everyone's okay. And he cared about it as well. And, and you know, very often you've got to understand that there's, there's, there's different, uh, there's different, there's different um, motivators um, uh, f- for, for the team. Obviously, Ott is wanting desperately to win rallies. He wants desperately to be world champion. Tommy has obviously a huge commercial investment on behalf of his employer. He's having to deliver. You know, he'll have a set of targets. Tommy, you know, go and win me this rally, win me this championship. Uh, I need you to do this. I need you to not spend up, spend too much money. All manner of drivers. So in- inevitably, there are little bits of rub between different people. And, you know, it's competition as well. So the emotions are always running hot in competition. I always used to say, in fact, it was, it was a, 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 a very valued colleague, a, a chap called Richard Cregan, uh, who, who used to say, um, if you can't actually have an argument on a rally, you know, a moment of stress uh, or, or ex- you know, extreme stress or, or drama, uh, 
uh, and then just recover from it uh, with, with with your friends, with your colleagues immediately, then you're in the wrong business. Of course, you know, the emotions are going to run hot every now and again. Somebody will make a decision that someone else thinks is wrong and it'll get a bit heated for a few minutes. This is normal. Uh, and, and, you know, it's a competitive, everybody's there wanting to win. So I think it's a little bit unfair to say that the drivers of old were better team players than the drivers. Now, the whole... Uh, the whole ethos and, and method of an event has changed slightly. I mean, it, it, ultimately, you know, a, a modern driver can't be selfish for himself to get exactly what he wants to the detriment of the team. You know, if he's trying to get the biggest salary possible, blah, 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 blah. It means the team's going to have less money to spend on uh, on development. So, you know, what's the point? What's the point of him, you know, getting an extra couple of million bucks and he's never going to be world champion? His career's going to be a lot shorter. And these guys can figure that one out. Maybe. I tell you what, the drivers can figure out. Sometimes some of the management teams behind them, I, I would have a couple of questions about them, because they're they're not they're not perhaps looking at it the same competitive way that uh, the driver and the teams will. So yeah, there's always going to be a bit of a rub. I I, I wouldn't say that, um, you know. When I've, I mean, I've compared Bjorn Waldegard and and Carlos Sainz and Sebastian Loeb, Sebastian Ogier, all four, I regard as absolute. Gentlemen filled with humility, filled with determination, and and they stretch across actually four eras. You know, one melded into the other. You know, Bjorn melded into Carlos's career, or Carlos melded into Bjorn's career. Sebastian Loeb melded into into uh, Carlos's career, and Sebastian Ogier melded into Loeb's career. There's four drivers across four generations of rally cars. You know, the better part of forty years plus. And and I and I think that there were four four world champions, and uh, uh, four multiple world champions, in fact, and and uh, they all had the very very similar ethos about them. Yeah, they looked after the team. So Bjorn, we were out there on safari. You know, he would be going through a section. Uh, he would be telling you which route to use on the road section. George, don't go that way. That's a rough road. Go this way. It'll take you a wee bit longer, but we'll just wait at the top. Don't worry about it. We'll get a coffee in the hotel up there, you know, just making sure you were okay, not selfish at all. And and giving you, you know, when you stop for lunch, when you stop for dinner, the stories that you would get from these guys was amazing. So, yeah, that first year I was there, I think we did a three-week recce. So we must have gone round the, the entire route, maybe three or four, maybe even five times in that three-week period. There was then a week Gosh. off when uh, I think the drivers went away and did something else. I remember I got a week at the beach. Fantastic. It was good. Uh, in fact, I didn't get a week at the beach. I, I, I got a week off and the the Toyota dealer let me use one of the team cars and I went away touring around Kenya on my own in a cut-down Celica it was. <laughs> Had a fuel tank inside the boot and slightly better suspension on it. I went everywhere with that car. I went through every national park. I went up into the mountains with it around and about places that the rally didn't go, some places that the rally did go that I wanted to see that I hadn't seen on the recce. I was careful. I didn't have any problems. Stopped in a couple of nice hotels. So, George, t tell us how you go from that position, from driving, mm. what, what did you call it, a, a mud car? Uh, no, well, that was the very, the very first, the very first, the very first event. Well, I was a mud car mechanic, so I was in a, a Land Cruiser uh, HJ 55, it was, 55, yes, uh, short wheelbase, we had fuel, we had tyres, we had a couple of struts. 
Um, some yeah, and, and a toolbox. I had a toolbox yeah. and some suspension links. In the and and we were put into all the difficult places in the Ivory Coast. In Kenya, we had the same sort of things. We generally used locals in them, um, but in Kenya, you could use a helicopter. So you had a you had a helicopter. And in 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 Ivory Coast, you couldn't because of there was just just trees everywhere. It was jungle. Helicopter was useless. But tell us how you go from that, George, to being Toyota's main man out in Kenya to being. Ah, well, go to man, right hand man. How, how did and, and it happened over a relatively short uh, period of time, didn't it? Yeah, you ever seen one of those movies, How, how to Murder Your Boss? <laughs> <laughs> no, Colin, um, just happenstance, really. Right place, right time. I, you know, if, if anybody asked me to do anything, the answer was always yes, dead simple. And, 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 and I would find out what I was doing, I would work hard at it, I would learn, I was a quick learner. Uh, I was a detailed learner, and and uh, you know, uh, when you don't know how to do something and you're being asked how to do it, um, it's going to take you a bit longer. Well, there's 24 hours in a day. Uh, you, you just get up a little bit earlier and and, and work right through till it's done. Sometimes there's big mountains of work to do, and you think, will I ever get clear of it? You just keep digging away, and eventually you get it done. So you know, I get. I think it was just that. That was the person that said yes. Um, I I didn't tend to drink very much. I wasn't much of a drinker. And I suppose to some extent, the, the sober man in a team full of <laughs> heads tends to be quite useful. <laughs> um, the, um, uh, yeah, and, and that, and maybe that's why I was out that day doing the recce and, and the other, uh, the, the two Swedes weren't. Um, <laughs> um, the, uh, the reason I didn't drink was because any, any money I had, any money I had just went into rally cars. So, you know, it, it was tyres, it was suspension, it was brakes, it was entry fees, it was travel expenses. I, I just spent everything I had on rally. So there was never a money for a beer. I just never, ever got a taste for beer. I mean, I have to confess to having the odd gin and tonic sitting in the bar at the end of the day in uh, in in Kenya. But I, I never, and I, I'm not I'm not really a, a hardened heavy drinker at all. Yeah. Far, far from it. Sorry. So, yeah. So, I mean, I was basically the person that was available in the morning, and eventually, you you know, people start to realise how useful you are. Um, you say yes to everything. You're always there. You never let anybody down. Never let anybody down. Uh, always do the job. Do the job right. Um, sometimes to your own personal detriment. I mean, I've I've taken a few canings over the years, but um. Not, not, not regarding Safari Rally, but um, in Safari Rally, basically, um, I remember when I when I got offered the job of of effectively, you know, workshop stroke event manager. I think you'd you'd have to call it in Kenya. It, we were just on our way to Cataluna Rally. It must have been nineteen ninety one, and I bumped into Doug Aurora, our uh, our African engineer. Uh, or you know he had well he was our team engineer but he, Africa was his thing that's what he loved and uh, I said they were just about to, you know they were just starting to get ready to go to Kenya before Christmas um so they did we did a pre Christmas test by then this was in ninety two so uh, the the um the events had changed our cars had changed obviously to the 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 the, the Group A four wheel drive Celicas and it had been a very very long hard development and they just kept that ethos up of these huge, huge tests. It was an important uh, thing for Toyota at the time. At that time, you didn't have to do all the world championship events, uh, although although by then we did. Uh, but we just we just kept up this six-month pro- uh, presence in Kenya. It, 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 Lancia did the same at the time. Um, 
So I, I, bu I bumped into the corridor and said, oh, you're just about off to Kenya. Um, and we're coming out for the high-speed test. And he said, he said, are you just away to Catalonia? Yes. He said, how about um, we just had the, the guy, the previous guy that had been doing the uh, workshop manager in Kenya, who had been with us for a number of years, a very, very good friend, David, he'd, uh, he was just disappearing off to Tanzania, taking a job there instead of the rally. So Dave Myers was leaving. Would I be prepared to go? And I said, yeah, that'd be fine. He said, right, you need to go out on Saturday. And this would be like the Tuesday. So I was taken off Catalina. I went home, packed my bag for Kenya. And off I went to Kenya for six months. Wow. So, but it would be from, uh, that would be from mid-October until, until the, end of, uh, the end of April, beginning of May. I mean, remarkable, and they were very different days. And you know, I think what a lot of people forget as well is that the you know the safari car was very much a car that was designed and built for that event. It wasn't as if you could just take a gravel car and say, okay, well, we'll just put a little bit of extra suspension mm -hmm. travel on it. We'll put a little bit of extra protection underneath it, and off you go. Well, it was more or less a ground up, uh, you know, well, designed specific car, wasn't it? Absolutely. Now, I mean, I, I hope that most folks have listened to their rather excellent stories from uh, from Derek Doncey last week about his experience on Safari 96, uh, namely that event. I mean, and what an incredible job that team did. The Mitsubishi team came there. They understood what they had to do. They leveraged every advantage they could. They looked at what they had and they did a brilliant job, an absolutely brilliant job. It was a and absolutely, it was the first of the special stage events. The longest section was probably 70 or 80 kilometres. I don't think there was anything very much longer than that. Um, fuel tanks were a bit smaller than they had been. We'd been running 160 litre fuel tanks. I think we were down to 120 litre fuel tanks. But listening to the stories from Derek, you, you heard about their car, you know, just really surviving. You know, they, they repaired it, they figured it out, they up-revved it, and they did a brilliant job of interpreting it. That year, 96, we went, well, that, that was the year we were effectively, Toyota was banned. So we went there as a, as a, a customer team, although it was the factory team that, was, that we were providing the, the technical cover and we provided the, um, uh, uh, the, the, the event management and the facilities and everything. But it was, we had um, local drivers, Ian Duncan, I think Yoshi Fujimoto was probably there, and we had a few other both previous drivers. winners, George. Both previous winners. Oh yeah, we went there. We went there. We went there with with what should have been a reasonable chance to win. Um, yeah. However, however, we went with a few a few uh, handicaps. One of which, um, for some reason, I can't quite remember the reason, we weren't allowed. The the team. Within the team engineering, I think there had been some discussion. I don't quite know what the issue was. We we didn't have the proper top mounts for the car. We had aluminium top mounts rather than titanium top mounts on the suspension, a known weakness. So we had to we had to drive the car a little bit more carefully than normal. Uh, and for a long time, we were involved in the three-way push for the lead of that event. And um, uh, it, it was there was a huge huge fight. And I mean, it must have been, was it maybe the second, maybe the, maybe the near the middle, middle towards the end of the rally. And it was the end of the day. It would have been neck and neck, literally just a few minutes between Tommy, uh, Ian Duncan and I, th I mean, would it have been Colin McRae? 
can't remember who the third driver was. Um, but we were doing a section from Mount Rock, from these this this huge escarpment above Lake Naivasha, where the rally's going to be. And it was quite a quite a long section. It'll be one of the longer sections, 70 or 80 kilometres from a place. I think it started at a place called El Bergen. Came up the Mau Escarpment, over the top, and then it it uh, it crossed over the, the main road, competitive, and then right along the top of the Mau Escarpment. Uh, and I can't remember the wee place where it comes to, where it then you're headed south, right down the back of this escarpment, and you come down this rather steep, long descent for about 30 kilometres to, to, to Lake Naivasha. And I always forget the name of the little town that's just at the junction there, um, just just to the north of Hell's, Hell's Gate National Park. We had a service zone there, and uh, the cars were coming down there neck and neck. And Ian, there were some huge um, the dust holes. So you, you, the road looks perfect. But in fact, there's a, a massive hole and it's filled literally with dust. And he'd gone through one of them. Now, it was a big hit. Normally, the car would have survived it. But he broke, I think, both rear top mounts. And, um, the, of course, the car filled with dust and he had no rear no rear shockers. And he had to slow down a little bit. And I think, it, I think we hemorrhaged about seven or eight minutes there, which put us a little bit back from the lead. So um, we, we, didn't, uh, we didn't quite have the car that we needed. To, to, to challenge at the front. But, you know, bearing in mind, you know, we were up against basically a straightforward European car, which was running very, very, you know, as, as Derek said, you know, a huge fuel tank in it and, and two spares. I mean, it was running 50, 60, probably, probably 70 kilos heavier in the boot than it normally did. And, you know, it was in danger of falling apart. So it did incredibly well. And Tommy drove, I think, I think that was actually the drive of his life. Now, I mean, that's hard to say that about Tommy because you think about his four four um, Monte Carlo wins, when the guy is he's like he's the human version of 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 skid control. You know, he's anti skid control. The man is amazing. Um, but I think that Safari Rally, his judgment there was amazing. Granted, his you know one of his closest friends was Juha Kankinen, who was not there. He want, desperately wanted to be there, but wasn't allowed to come by Toyota. We were there, but without him, and I'm quite I'm quite sure that uh, he would have told Tommy what he needed to know as well to go out and do that. I mean, Tommy basically went out and broke the car during the recce, during the test. He broke the car everywhere he could to find out where it broke, and then he, then he then so then he knew where the car would break, and he drove inside that. That's incredible judgment. Now we had we had a similar situation. You know, we had a, we had a very very strong car, but we knew it had some weaknesses. And in fairness, we didn't manage to drive it. And, you know, Ian Duncan, well, granted, it was a massive push. And the push had been going all day. I mean, it was an incredible battle all day. And it was just that last little section down from the Mau Escarpment down to Lake Naivasha where where the car broke. It was a bit of a shame. Um, but ultimately, you know, you're a bit unlucky. You hit the wrong hole at the wrong time. Call it an error of judgment. Some people call it luck. I'm, I, as you know, I'm a big fan of saying you make your own luck. Tommy made his own luck there. He made that team's luck. Make no mistake. The team worked very, very hard to give Tommy what he needed. But it was Tommy that figured out. Tommy was a one-man event engineer for that whole rally. It was amazing. And what we have to remember, George, is that it was Mackinnon's first time in Africa. He'd yeah, never been yeah. before. Never Tommy, been before. 
Colin, okay. Yet to be world champion at this point. So he's experienced, but he's not massively experienced. And, and as you say, the intelligence to go out there, guided, obviously, by a fantastic team around him, with real foresight, real ability to work out what was needed to win the event, but real pressure on them to do that. But, you know, Mackinnon, to be able to go there under those circumstances, with that pressure... With that little experience, uh, you know, I, I'd agree with well, you. I think it's just one of the most remarkable remar- remarkable events of all time. Uh, I mean, D- Derek, Derek outlined it very quickly. You know, they went there with a bit of an idea how to do it. Derek had never been there before, but he'd been sending stuff out to the event for the, for the, 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 the Japanese team. So he knew a little bit about what was expected, knew they had nothing like the same, obviously had figured out a plan, but they basically just trusted Tommy implicitly. And and Tommy was just allowed to do what he needed to do. And they just, every time he broke the car, they would identify what had broken, they would fix it, they would, they would mitigate that problem. Tommy would have looked at that and said, "Okay, that's going to happen again. So I need to not do that again. Or now that you've, you've solved that, I can continue at this pace." Honestly, he was a one-man safari engineer. And what was it that uh, yeah. Derek said he was there for six weeks? The drivers were probably there for about six weeks as well. So in six weeks, they they condensed. And well, first of all, it was a, it was a new event. It was a different event. It was it was still the same sort of rally as Safari Rally was, but just condensed shorter but no less intense i mean i remember the intensity uh, all the teams we were all standing together i remember standing with uh, uh well it would have been phil short and 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 um um john spiller that just just outside the control at that little town uh, at the end of the last section that day heading into lake naivasha i think we went back down to nairobi that night on a on a road section and and honestly, we were all just chatting, and it was the the intensity. You could see the lights in the distance, you know, coming down from the escarpment. But there were still thirty kilometers away at that point, you know. Wow. Uh, the helicopters, wow. the helicopters were gone. It was nighttime. The helicopters were gone. Oh, they were finished. Yeah. Um, those drivers came down there on their lonesome, and it, yeah. was, it was a hell of a fight. It was it was amazing. I remember uh, John because when when. Um, when uh, Ian Duncan came through, of course, the, the rear shockers had gone up through the, the, the back window of the car on the, it was a Celica uh, 185. Uh, we didn't have any plastic. We, we, we went with a very small team. I mean, it was a very, very small team of people. We had 20, 25 people there, tops. Um, uh, and a few local, a few locals. We went with a, a, a really massively smaller team. Um, the we didn't have that much in the way of spares with us. As I said, we didn't even have the right the right parts for the car. Um, we didn't have any plastic uh, rear windows, and uh, we had no no spare no spare windows back at uh, back at base. I think we'd maybe used them all already. And John Spiller went and organised a, a big sheet of plastic from one of his vans and gave it to us so we could paste that in the window. That that was so. so and George, because nice. uh, just to let you know, obviously Spiller is a name. I'm sure. A lot of our listeners are familiar oh, with, he, but just remind us, he was with Subaru at the time, right? He he was he was a Subaru team manager, yeah, with uh, with ProDrive, the ProDrive Subaru team. So and 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 Phil, of course, was a team manager for uh, for the Mitsubishi team. And Phil, remember, Phil had a huge amount of uh, safari experience as well, so he he knew how to to manage. I mean, there's there's a lot of unseen things happen on safari rallies. A team manager, you are managing the gaps between the cars 
listening into the organizer's radio to find out where the cars are. You've got no idea where you are minute to minute. Um, it, it's quite interesting. I mean, I, I remember on the, the safari rally I did with Mitsubishi rally. I did one safari rally with Mitsubishi, which we won. And um, uh, that again, that was in a changed era, but it was still very, very difficult to know where you were gap-wise. So basically, I'd, I'd, I was in a very well-honed team uh, working with Derek at that time. And uh, basically, I just I just focused in on managing that gap for for Tommy so that he knew exactly where he was. You know, even when you checked into control, Tommy, get into that control a minute early. You need to be in front. These guys are going for it. And you would go in a minute and that would be you. A minute in front, you, you got a dust-free run, you know. You, 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 take, you would take, take penalty to, 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 to get in front on the road when you needed and to. And that, that and would have been 2001, George. But if we go back to your days with Toyota, obviously, because yeah, that, that wonderful. Really, wonderful times. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it was 1995, and it was the end of an era, really, for Toyota and Safari, wasn't it? You know, 1995 was the fourth year in a row you'd won that event. You, you weren't there, as you say, in 96 officially. But it never was the same with Toyota and Safari after that. You never managed to replicate that success that you'd enjoyed. No, I mean, that was, uh, don't open a, open a bitter wound for me, oh, Colin, please. please. <laughs> um, the, the event had quite clearly changed in 96. Uh, and and uh, I'm afraid our, our engineers were still focused on the old days. And we never changed our car. To make it light and fast, we always we went with the old ethos. We never changed enough. Um, and I remember in '98, I think it must have been '98, Safari Rally. We went out there. the The guys had been uh, was Ian Duncan had been testing down there with our test team since before Christmas. We went down there. Everything had been reported as fine. I remember going down there after the Swedish Rally with uh, Juha and uh, with uh, Carlos and Didier. And they went out in the car, 50 kilometres, the shock absorbers failed on both cars. Wow. And so we changed them. What's going on here? And another 50 kilometres and they failed. This is 98. And uh, what, what's going on here? What, you know, we're running, we're running Olin's suspension by this point. How, how come our Olin's are failing and no one else's are? Well, it's a, an Olin's over with our own modification on it. Toyota's own modification on it. Um, or, the, or TTE's own modification on it, I should say. And it was, it was honestly speaking, it was a disaster. And I, I can remember Carlos in the workshop with with this engineer, with Dago, getting so, so angry. I'm sitting there. And so I'm, at this point, I'm the team manager. I've got another workshop manager down there by that point with Carlos saying, asking for an explanation. How, how, how can this car not do more than 50 kilometres? You've been down here for three months. And uh, you know, at that time, it was still very hard to phone back to Europe. But of course, he'd be on the phone back to Uwe Anderson, absolutely furious. I mean, what's going on here? How come I've not got a car? And then the team working desperately in the same fashion that uh, in the same fashion that Mitsubishi that that uh, Derek was telling us about fixing things with bits of rubber, bits of steel. The guys worked like hell. The suspension guys had some ideas to modify the shock absorbers. Guys that hadn't been there for three months came down and, and started to fix it. And we made a car that nearly worked. We didn't win Safari Rally in 98. We were very close at one point. I think I think both years we finished third, 98 and 99. I could be wrong. George. Correct me if I'm wrong. But it was disappointing, yeah. 
Yeah, but tell me, tell me how that happens. How does that happen? How do you go out with a guy like Ian Duncan who knows those stages like the back of his hand? He knows Toyotas. He's tested for three months. Surely you've got the setup right to actually give your drivers a chance of winning. How does that happen? That your your lead driver comes out and on the first day discovers that your shocks aren't up to it. I I I I genuinely am a loss. But I, I remember I remember um, having a huge row myself with Dago Rohrer about this. He was furious that that I was siding with Carlos. So maybe maybe that kind of says it all, really, doesn't it? I mean, I, of course I was saying I mean I, I'm I'm a winner. I wanted to win. Uh, and and they'd been down there for three months. You know, were they on holiday or what? I've no idea. I've no idea. I've no idea. I and mean, I tell you what, I tell you what. To make one thing absolutely clear: our engineers over the over the years did an incredible job. There was mistakes made that year. Sadly, they were emulated the following year as well. Um, and, and 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 both Carlos and both Carlos and Didier were 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 um, denied. The chance for victory in Safari, and did he loved Safari Rally? The, remember the first year he went, must have been nineteen, must have been nineteen ninety three, yeah, nineteen ninety three. I think it was the first year he went. First year he was with us. It was such a surprise to him. But you know, by the yeah. end of it, he 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 loved it, and he loved. I mean, Diddy is just an incredible driver, very underrated in some ways, and and uh, maybe overrated in others. But um, I, I find him the most incredible guy. I really loved working with him. So passionate, and uh, very very fair guy as well. I'm sure, George. You mentioned a few times there the boss, Uwe Anderson. Mm-hmm. He was a man yeah, that yeah. had a lot of love for Africa as well, a lot of experience yeah, of, yeah. of competing. In that part yeah, of yeah. the world, oh, yeah. just how difficult, just how difficult were those phone calls? He wasn't an easy man to work for. I mean, you know, maybe that's why you got on with him so well. You're, you're two pretty strong characters, um, but just how difficult were those phone calls after '95 to explain suspension failures and, and that and, kind and, of and thing? 90, uh, that was uh, ninety. That was '98 and '99. Uh, Richard went on to win in '98. I think uh, I remember Derek's uh, call on that. We, I mean, I don't think we were at the races at all that year. I mean, we might we might have been close, but we were. There was no way we were going to compete with the suspension that we had. Um, the the, and Uwe, Uwe was out there by then. I mean, he would have been out for the event and seeing what was going on. I I I don't know. I mean, Uwe Uwe loved engineering and he was a very very uh, loyal person and and. Uh, I remember thinking this is going to be this is going to be fairly hard for that engineer to, to explain this, uh, but quite frankly, it needed explaining, it needed rectification, and we needed to make damn sure it never happened again. And I guess Uva got his explanation. I wasn't part of that. I was I wasn't uh, I, I didn't I didn't particularly want to know about it. It was being dealt with um, uh, between Uva and the engineer. Um, I, I know that our drivers were quite disillusioned after that experience and we went back the next year and we had exactly the same damn thing Colin yeah yeah it was a bit of a it was it was very very untoyota like it was I mean again that was the loyalty because Uva 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 was very loyal to 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 his staff for the most part he did break faith with me once which was very hard but I mean I did what he wanted and then he and then it was all my fault but hey look it's it's the way it's it's the way it is it's the way it goes 
Uh, remember, worst day of worst day of my life. You know that that'll be one of them. Um, they, but no, he 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 obviously um, he he obviously felt a great deal of loyalty. And remember that those that same team of engineers took us to Safari Rally for the first time with the GT4 Celica, a car that was remarkably fragile on European events. And and they gave us a Safari win at a time when we were up against it, 89, 90, uh, up against all the all the Lancias, and we were, you know, we're getting a whipping everywhere we went. And we went out to Kenya, and that particular engineer gave us a win, gave us a win at a time when it was so critical. So Uva wouldn't have forgotten that. And I guess there was the out, wasn't it? That was the out. Um, yeah. So, 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 we, so we made a mistake in 98. We've been talking uh, wonderful stories for, for the past hour or so, George. I've not got past the first five minutes of the story yet. <laughs> sorry. sorry. No, I, it's, I, I'm loving it. But is there any particular story you want to tell? Because I, I just want to move on to the current okay. day. Here's, here's an image. But was there here's anything a, in particular? Here's an image, Colin. That very first safari rally. Um, at the end of, it must have been the, the the second or third day of the rally, myself and a mechanic uh, that I was with, a guy called uh, Jerry, uh, an Irish lad, sadly no longer with us. Jerry was an absolute hoot of a guy. We'd had a great event up till then, and it continued to be good. So the cars had been driving all night. They'd gone all the way from Nairobi down to Mombasa and then driven, little, well, not quite Mombasa. I think we'd gone down to a place called McKinnon Road, believe it or not. And then we'd come back up through a rough section. They'd gone all through the 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 um, the, the Taita Hills section around the Savo, Savo West Park, Loy Toki Tok, back through the, the Chula range of hills overnight. And uh, Jerry and I, their previous service had been south of Voy Lodge at a place, I think, called Maunga. I think it was maybe that, or maybe Bundama or something. There was a, a section in to, to um, the Rukanga Loop, it was called. I can't remember the name of the, the little town. I think it was Mawanga. And Bjorn came in for a quick service, and it was only going to be a top-off of fuel. And we had to put a hundred liters of fuel in. Jerry on the pump, me holding the holding the uh, the filler into the into the the fuel tank. The, these these fuel fillers they had about a hundred millimeter hose diameter on them, so you could put fuel in really quickly. Jerry was a powerful guy. He uh, he he pumped. I put the fuel in. We put it in, and we had to position ourselves and make sure we were positioned behind the the Lancia team so that. Bjorn and Juha had arrived more or less simultaneously. Bjorn stopped with us. Juha uh, came past us, went in front. And we saw them jacking the car up to change the, the tyres. And we filled the fuel in. Uh, they were both on the same minute. So the rules were the first person at the control would start first into the section. Yep, they were in exactly the same minute. So we, we'd positioned ourselves correctly. Bjorn had organised it. Had Henry Lydon on the radio making sure we're in the right place. So this, this is probably about 11 o'clock at night. We watched them going into that Mwanga section. Bjorn pulled out and flew into the section in front of, in front of Yuha. Yuha followed him the entire night. And the next morning, up at a place called Cagiado, probably about a 350 kilometre drive for us, 
maybe a five or six hundred kilometre drive for the drivers. Um, Bjorn and Yuha appeared over over the horizon uh, at Kajiado. We could see them from about five or six kilometres away. Who would be first? Jerry and I were sitting there watching. We had a, we had everything laid out: tires, fuel, um, uh, and and again they didn't want to stop. They were driving on into main service in Nairobi. Uh, if if they had to, it was only about fifty kilometres away, sixty kilometres, and. Uh, we watched the cars. Which one? Which car would appear first? The first thing it was. It was. It maybe had been forty-five minutes into daylight, and uh, we'd sent a. Obviously, the team had sent an airplane out, um, uh, to to try and spot them on the way in. We didn't have helicopters at that time, and uh, and anyway, the, the rally was too fast. Then the Group B cars on those African roads, the cars were doing one hundred and forty miles an hour. Helicopters couldn't keep up. The first thing we saw was this airplane coming over the horizon. And, uh, but it was about f maybe four or five miles away. And then you could see the stream of dust coming over the horizon. Who will it be? Who will it be? Who will it be? And, and they, they sort of, it, it, the, the, the section almost came in sort of parallel, but, but uh, speeding in towards the, the highway. And we were about maybe a kilometre after the control we were set up. And we saw this car come past and it was Bjorn. It was Bjorn. And uh, he came in and he pulled into us and uh, we were watching and then we could see another airplane arriving. And Bjorn came in and he said, can you see the other car yet? Can you see the other car yet? No, no. And he said, how are my back tyres? Checked his back tyres. are still OK. We don't need fuel. We're fine. We're gone. And on we went. And that was him. He'd actually made three minutes on Yuha over the course of an entire night's rally. Probably done about, about five or six hundred kilometres of sections. I think there was a short regroup in uh, Kilimanjaro Buffalo Lodge on that section. And there'd been a little bit of rain, I think, um, south of Loitoki Tok with the black, the famous black cotton dust. That was an amazing moment seeing those cars arriving. Amazing. Uh, George, I'm, 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 I'm sitting visualising it and it literally is giving me goosebumps. So the, the speed of the car, the speed of the car. Just that, George. I mean, it's, it's the, it's, it's the, uh, you know, the understanding of, of just you know, how much of an adventure rallying really was in those days. So that's five or six hundred kilometers flat out most of the time. Can't well, that was that was all section. That was all section. That, that for, from when you went in at, at uh, Moanga, the, the Rukanga Loop, you you came out. You literally you came out. You went straight into the Taita Hill sections. Then you would go out across out towards the the border. I can't remember the name of the town just short of the border, just on the south end of Kilimanjaro. And you went up round the edge, right round the edge of the border of Tanzania and up to wow. through Loitoki Tok. Wow. Back along a, a, a slightly bigger road, but still gravel, gravel to a place called Kilaguni. And then you, and then you went north up the, through the Chulas, which was a devil of a section. Long grass, long grass, wicked. Makatani yeah, up George. the pipeline. Up the pipeline and then f through another, you know, 120 kilometer section up to Kajiado. Amazing. Yeah, and and you know, again, so we're driving through the night. You're driving, you know, enormous what you're calling sections, and they were known as sections in those days. Um, group B cars, 140 miles an hour, 200 and whatever that is, 10, 20 kilometers an hour. 240 kph, Colin. 240. 240 kph. Goodness yeah. me. Uh, on open roads, you know these aren't well, closed it, it was, roads. These are Colin, partial roads. Colin, it was a road race, but look, the whole country understood it. The the, yes. the speed limits were 
suspended for rally cars and rally teams. There was no speed limits. Everybody knew. Everyone, everyone. So you, when you, you were going, if you were in a rally car, so they always ran with these wing lights on. The wing lights were historically to stop the, the spotlights getting muddy, but they became like a telltale. When you saw a car with those lights on coming fast, you would see all the, all the matatus, all the buses, everybody would pull over off the road. It was understood. Um, it was, uh, there weren't many, there, there weren't many accidents, you know, and the sort of accidents there were, were, were people panicking to get off the road and they would slip off into a ditch and, you know, a, a matata would be half on its side or something. It, you know, nobody was going that fast. So it wasn't, uh, it wasn't an issue at that time. Um, it, it was an amazing event and I mean, such an atmosphere. But I mean, I remember, I remember at that point with Jerry thinking to myself, this is just the most amazing experience. Pinching both Jerry and I. I mean, we we talked about it in those terms. We pinched ourselves because we we could hardly believe we were there. Jerry was the same as same sort of guy as me. Uh, we we pinched oh, ourselves um, thinking about it and and we're saying like this is like you know this is like a nineteen fifties Millie Miglia, but it's but it's a Migli, a, a, a Millie a Millie. Quattro Miglia, you know, it's 4,000 kilometres of, 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 it was a 4,000, 4,500 kilometre event, 3,000 plus competitive in, in 1986, it would have been, yeah, it would have been. Amazing, amazing plus. stuff, George. And Just you know, as, as we sit here today, as we sit here today, George, it is 25 years since Toyota last won the Safari Rally. The event is still on. It does look highly likely that sadly, the return to the Safari Rally this year will probably be cancelled. If we're lucky, it'll be postponed. But I, I suspect it'll be cancelled, and then fingers crossed, we'll go back next year. But you, you have to say that you're 25 years since Toyota won their last Safari Rally with Tommy Mackinnon in charge, the only team boss with any experience, and it's not just any experience, but vast experience of the Safari Rally. With Tommy Mackinnon in charge with. Ogier there, the most intelligent driver in the field. Elvin Evans there, who is looking like a real competitor on any surface. And Callie Robin Perra, who can do just about anything. Um, mm. You have a very good chance we might well have seen a first victory for Toyota there in 25 years. You know, we'll keep our fingers crossed. It does happen. And by the time this podcast comes out, there may be further news. Uh, but, you know, George, how excited were you about the prospect of seeing Toyota on the safari again this year? Ah, Colin, if you, if you cut me down the middle, it'll probably say Toyota on one side and, and Subaru on the other. Um, I have an, a huge affinity for Toyota. Uh, um, Tommy's a very good friend, even though I've probably upset him in the last week. Um, I'm, I'm hoping he's still my friend. Uh, uh, I would love to see him and his team succeed uh, in Safari Rally. Sebastian Ogier, such an intelligent guy. They'll figure out what they have to do. Elf and Evans proving also to be you know, quite clever. Everybody's going there with the same chances. I mean, it's a great leveller, so just exactly what Elfin needs to, to see what they need to do. But I've been looking at the sections they're running and, and you know, they're running on the same, some of the same roads we used to run on. Um, you know, those roads are really rural roads up there. You know, they're, they're up there on the edge of the Mau Escarpment again. Just that, that little bit that I just talked about. Uh, you know, the, the yeah. dusty road with the huge dust holes in it. They're running all around that. They're running, a, I think they're running one stage 
through and over Hell's Gate National Park, past the big uh, thermal... Uh, it's all thermal area around there. It's all volcanoes. There you are. Nobody, nobody's mentioned the volcanoes. They're not really active volcanoes. Well, they are because it's all thermal. There's huge thermal uh, power stations around there. So they're running some of those sections over there. And I think they were actually maybe running around Suswa, another monster of a section. You can. You can run it as a 25, 30 kilometre, maybe, maybe 50 kilometre section. Um, and that's still in the in the ballpark there. So, look, my point being is, I think it'll still be a very very tough test. It will be, it'll <laughs> be like a, it'll be like a, it'll be like a, a an enteric coated aspirin seventy five instead of a full strength one, you know. What? But it'll still be, it'll still be, it'll still be an aspirin. It'll still be a safari. It'll be I, great. I am looking. I am looking at videos that a friend of mine has sent to me from Kenya this morning of a route survey that's going on there this morning and it does it does look remarkably challenging i mean well, these Colin, are it will be it these will are be dirt I mean, tracks these are yes. dirt tracks and they are literally you know grass down the middle dirt tracks uh-huh. and they disappear disappear at Colin, times. there is there is no construction in these roads these are not macadam roads these are not roads with a hard base construction they are just a route through the through the the wilderness, basically, that's what they are. Well, Georgie, um, let's keep our fingers crossed that we do. Well, safari safari rally, Colin, is one that should be able to be delayed and postponed slightly. Uh, running safari in um, in uh, right even right up to Christmas, it would it would do very very well. Um, you get the small rains uh, just before Christmas. Uh, they're, they're not they're not big rains, but it damps everything down a little bit. Really, really nice there in October, November. Gorgeous weather, so a good time to be there. Um, very yeah, nice to go, go there when we're, we're in the, the bite of our winter. If I go to Kenya, I'll just not come back. I'll just not come back, Colin. <laughs> it is gorgeous. Look, it's a, an event with great flavour. It's an event with great flavour. And, you know, there's the scenery out of Nairobi up to Lake Naivasha. You, you leave Nairobi, you, you go up the, the A1 uh, road, um, the A, sorry, A104, I think it is, you, you you go up uh, right up over the escarpment and and as you come up over the escarpment there's a, a a lookout point just on the highest point of that road you come up through the forest and it can get very cold you go up to about 8000 feet you start off at 5000 feet you go up to about 8 maybe 9000 feet and then you, you you get up there there's a viewpoint and it looks out over the most classic dormant volcano in fact i think it's possibly extinct uh, longanot crater and you look right into the crater from above it and it's across it's across the valley, probably about ten or twelve kilometers away. And you're you're looking literally right into this crater. It's the most amazing crater, and that's the small one. The big one's behind that. Suswa is behind it. Um, it's, uh, it's you know it's less classically shaped, but that's amazing. And and you know, if you kept driving north, I swear you could be you could be in Finland one minute. You could be in Norway the next with the chasms and you think, where am I? It's it's all forests, but these huge fjord-like chasms. Well, that's called the, the African Rift Valley. It's a little, you know, spear off it. Um, uh, was it uh, Kerio Valley up uh, up past uh, Cabernet and Eldoret? Most amazing little spur off, uh, off the, 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 the Great African Rift Valley. Amazing, amazing scenery. So- well, let's just... Keep our fingers crossed, George, that we do get back to Africa. You're painting a wonderful picture. You really are. Uh, George Donaldson, obviously a, a delight and a joy to listen to your many, many stories about the Safari Rally. Uh, we will be picking up again probably next week, maybe the week after, with your recollection of, uh, from Toyota's point of view, one of the most disappointing rallies 
that I suppose you've ever taken part in, the 1998 REC rally, uh, which Carlos Sainz obviously will remember well. But George, uh, your memories of Africa have kept me captivated for the past hour and a quarter or so. Uh, Once again, George Donaldson, thank you very, very much for your thoughts and your memories. It's been great. It's been a pleasure. And uh, I I guess, uh, I mean, I feel we've only done five minutes of an hour, so that means there's another uh, 12 12 programmes to come. Sorry. (laughs) I won't do that to everyone waxing lyrical. Thank you, Colin. George Donaldson doing what he does best by painting pictures with words and taking us all to the continent of Africa and back to Kenya. The rally is due to take place on July the 16th to the 19th this year, 2020. Whether it will or not, the best place you can stay tuned to is dirtfish.com. We will bring you the very latest rally news and post it as soon as we get it. But that's it for now. So why not subscribe for the very next episode to be delivered to your device? And I'll speak to you then. (laughs) 